You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Uh, for our listeners, we're going to be discussing the really tragic uh, recent terror attacks in Sri Lanka, uh, which are um, really, I think, have really rocked the island, which was uh, coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the end of its civil war uh, just this May. The war ended in 2009 after 25 years of fighting. Um, but what happened was uh, last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, uh, a group of coordinated, highly sophisticated terrorist attacks struck multiple targets on both the east and west coast of Sri Lanka. Uh, the target selection was interesting and wasn't particularly typical of the kind of violence that was seen during the Sri Lankan civil war, raising questions about who exactly the attackers might have been. Um, and now we know that this attack was ultimately claimed by the Islamic State. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about the implications of that in South Asia more broadly uh, on this podcast discussion. Um, but yeah, on Sunday, Multiple bombs struck uh, three luxury hotels and a series of churches around Sri Lanka targeting uh, Christian worshippers uh, uh, during Easter Mass. Uh, so these uh, bombings took place at the cities of Nagombo, Batikaloa, and the capital city of Colombo. Um, so the attacks now, it turns out, look like to be the most deadly ISIS attacks anywhere. Um, the death toll, as we record this podcast, stands at... 359, um, which is really um, sort of unprecedented in Sri Lanka and also more broadly in terms of the kinds of attacks that ISIS has been carrying out. Its most uh, high casualty attack recently uh, was in Iraq uh, with the uh, Baghdad bombings um, a year or so ago. So Prashant, I wanted to kind of break down the sort of geopolitics of what we're seeing here, which is something that we've talked about in the past on the podcast, obviously, which is the prospect of the Islamic State as it's defeated in Iraq and Syria, turning its attention to uh, more vulnerable areas in Asia and more broadly in the world. I mean, there's been a concern in uh, Europe as well, certainly, with uh, returning fighters there too. Um, but, but when you look at these bombings in Sri Lanka, uh, I think something that's very interesting is that we have pretty clear evidence of an intelligence failure at the center of this. Um, and, you know, we can explore the extent to which that was due to the still lingering ramifications of Sri Lanka's constitutional crisis from last year. Uh, so for listeners that weren't aware, um, last fall, Sri Lanka entered a major constitutional crisis after President uh, Maithripal Sirisena uh, effectively d dissolved his cabinet and appointed um, Mahinda Rajapaksa, the former president of the country, who was who Sirisana was actually part of his government, uh, as the new prime minister. And uh, that didn't go as planned, and ultimately the courts had to step in. And uh, Ranil Wickram Singh, who has been Sri Lanka's prime minister um, since, um, the, uh, since as, uh, the beginning of Sirisana's term, uh, was reappointed, and now he's back in office. But there appear to be lingering difficulties between sort of the president and the prime minister, which led to what Wickram Singh said was apparently a complete lack of seriousness about very specific intelligence inputs that were provided by the Indian side before these attacks took place. Um, so, Prashant, to what extent do you think, uh, you know, the incidents of this attack in Sri Lanka uh, can really be linked to the political dysfunction that we've seen there recently? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that uh, you frame the discussion is, is exactly right, which is that 
in the discussion following the attacks, we, we've been hearing about both internal and external drivers and potential causes for the attacks, right? So the external links are, are coming from the fact that um, the Islamic State has claimed responsibility. We don't exactly know what the shape of that responsibility is. It's a little bit suspicious that they claim responsibility a few days after the attacks. Um, usually when, when it's a more direct responsibility, it, it'll be pretty shortly afterwards. But nonetheless, I mean, there is clearly some kind of connection that um, the authorities are still investigating. But the internal drivers are, are things that we've discussed on this podcast before, as you noted, right? I mean, the fact that um, you're seeing a lot of political divisions in Sri Lanka among, and that still persists, right, among the current leadership, as well as Rajapaksa, who that framing is really important because Rajapaksa was the one who brought uh, an end, a very bloody end to, you know, a, a, a sort of quarter century of uh, civil war in Sri Lanka between the Tamil Tigers as well as the, the sort of majority Sinhalese population. And historically, that is what we have sort of talked about violence in Sri Lanka predominantly as being, right, in the context of civil war between, and that, that has been pit, pit against uh, the Tamil Tigers versus the Sinhalese. Here, we're having uh, targets that are clearly uh, demonstrated against uh, Christians, which turns the conversation towards a minority group that you know hasn't necessarily been a clear focus of that uh, political, those political and violence issues in, in, in Sri Lanka. But the, the divisions politically are, are interesting as well. I mean, right now we're, after this attack, there have been repeated concerns voiced among observers about, you know, could there be potential reprisals, right, targeting um, various groups, including Muslims, um, which gets at why it's really important to get the attribution issue right. But then there's also the fact that, um, you know, Sri Lanka is also approaching an election, right, later right. this year. And so these internal political dynamics that we're talking about are really important. And so the the fact that we're talking about the fact that is intelligence failure, obviously, you know, when all these attacks, including, you know, 9-11, most notoriously, right, the authorities had some information about the attack, but they weren't really able to piece together the various pieces. So that's that's not unique. But the fact that we have these allegations in an election year in Sri Lanka and the fact that that's existing alongside polarization and really deep divides that still remain makes for a really, you know, sort of a explosive and potent combination, right? Yeah. Um, so that's actually probably a good point to talk about the um, the domestic Sri Lankan group that was uh, that has come under scrutiny and is being accused with actually carrying out the attack, a group called National Tawhid Jamath, which is sort of a very, uh, you know, it's not a group that's particularly notorious outside of Sri Lanka. Its notoriety within Sri Lanka was fairly limited, given that this was the first real violent attack that it had carried out. Uh, the group has a history of sort of inciting protests, and actually one of its um, top leaders was arrested in November 2016 on the charge of inciting racism. But now all of a sudden we have, um, you know, sort of examples of what we've seen um, more broadly around Asia, right? Uh, we can talk about examples in the Philippines of sort of uh, longstanding local groups banding together with the Islamic State, which has broad, ambitious global objectives and carrying out terrorism uh, on behalf of the Islamic State. So that's a really worrying trend that I don't think is necessarily restricted to Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, I should also point out for listeners that we're recording this podcast fairly soon after the attack. So a lot of information is still trickling out. In fact, we were debating whether we even had enough to go on to actually do this episode. But after the um, claim of responsibility by ISIS, uh, we have a little bit more clarity on the on the nature of the attack. We've also had Sri Lankan authorities tell us a bit about the attackers, right? And we we sort of see a familiar pattern with other um, that has things in common with other attacks in South Asia. Uh, so, in particular, 
Um, Sri Lankan authorities have underscored the background of the attackers, that they were from well-to-do families, upper middle class, educated abroad in Australia. And, you know, listening to that, I immediately sort of thought back to the July 2016 attacks in Bangladesh uh, when the uh, Holy Artisan Bakery was attacked by attackers who aligned with um, aligned themselves with the Islamic State as well. And, and they exhibited a very similar background, too. They'd gone to some of the best private schools uh, in, in Dhaka, and yet, you know, they were radicalized. So I think that really shows that some of the narratives about radicalization, you know, that, oh, you know, terrorism is kind of a, um, a consequence of poverty or economic distress really doesn't hold, um, at, you know, across across the region more broadly. But I think that's actually uh, quite a concerning sign here in Sri Lanka, too. And of course, authorities are still continuing their investigation. Arrests are still being made. I mean, just, I think, 12, 15 hours ago, uh, authorities conducted another controlled demolition of a bomb that had failed to go off uh, in the country. So Sri Lanka is still, s- still quite raw and still investigating this um, as we speak. Yeah, I think that that point is really important to keep in mind, right? So the, we have Sri Lankan officials uh, who who keep saying and telling us that the threat is is far from over. That they'll need a few days to keep that situation under control. We we now have the FBI that's helping assist with the investigation, um, but that's coming amidst you know the fact that the government has been criticized for its response. Um, there's also a focus by the government now on, you know, making sure that some heads roll, um, that they're restructuring the intelligence services. So really a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty um, as we move ahead, right? So one of the things you noted in, in the piece that you wrote for us, right, is the fact that um, we're, we're still uncertain about not only the causes um, of this, but also the ongoing fallout, whether it's um, exacerbation of tensions between ethnic or religious groups, um, or how this is going to play, right, with the various political groups uh, ahead of the election. I mean, I think one thing that folks are fearing is that Rajapaksa may play up his role in helping bring an end to, to the civil war by and sort of saying, you know, I'm the kind of law and order uh, person or candidate that you should um, vote for or look to in opposition to the government. And that could just turn this whole debate and the government's response uh, in, in a whole new direction, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean... I think I think the political ramifications will be interesting. Uh, so it's actually um, it's uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the former defense minister and uh, the former president's brother, who who's being put forward by uh, his newly formed party later this year. But absolutely, that narrative is there that the Rajapaksa family is is the one to kind of bring law and order and peace to Sri Lanka um, and that sort of line of authoritarianism. I think. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen this happen in other countries after after major sort of traumatizing attacks. I think mm-hmm. I think, you know, even even if the manifestation of this violence wasn't necessarily directly due to the lingering wounds that remain after the Sri Lankan civil war. Um, I think the fact that this was sort of mass political violence against um, particularly against a minority group, but also against I mean, you know, the other uh, the other angle is that we do kind of see shades of the. 2008 Mumbai attacks in India, right, where mm-hmm. you have foreigners, um, Americans, Britishers, uh, Chinese citizens, um, all sorts of Europeans, um, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis killed at um, major hotels uh, in in Colombo, for example. Um, so I think that is going to certainly factor into um, the the climate leading up to the elections here. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah I... So how do you think? Um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, but I I just want to ask you about the. Um, sort of the intelligence cooperation angle with uh, India. Mm-hmm. So India's obviously been paying close attention to the Islamic State's uh, broader 
role in South Asia. Um, you know, there have been reports of Indian citizens, um, you know, running social media and the likes for uh, the Islamic State. And of course, there are um, among India's neighbors. There are obviously multiple countries where. Um, multiple fighters have gone to Syria and Iraq. Uh, you know, we can also talk about the example of the Maldives, which actually has the highest per capita rate of uh, Islamic State fighters, given it's a relatively small population. Uh, but I think in New Delhi, this is certainly being taken as a very serious sign that the jihadist threat uh, is no longer, um, you know, just across the border from Pakistan, where India is long worried about groups like Lashkar-e Taiba and Jaish-e Mohammed, but now uh, global groups like Islamic State, and of course there's um, Al Qaeda uh, in the Indian subcontinent, which was uh, formed several years ago as well, um, could begin targeting India as well. So I think for um, for New Delhi, that's certainly a major concern here. How do you see that playing out in the future? Yeah, I think you know the the narrative that that's been coming out and. and and shaping out is the fact that um, you know perhaps Sri Lanka and the Sri Lankan government was was so and has been so focused on uh, the fact that it's coming the threat is coming principally from uh, you know the Tamil Tigers and the civil war and sort of managing the fallout from that um, that they're not necessarily as attuned to the radical Islamic threat in terms of monitoring it and and being very vigilant about it as other countries in the region are. And India, most notably, right, given the fact that India has experienced repeated instances of this in recent years. And so I guess the question, you know, for, for New Delhi is the fact that, you know, you're also operating in a regional environment where uh, threat perceptions are divergent and not necessarily completely shared. Um, and how does that sort of evolve with this incident? I mean, you could see a scenario where the Sri Lankan government now would be much more attuned uh, to this dimension of the threat and, and sort of would would you know its response would be more more keen henceforth but the fact is i mean I, you're, you're hearing you know intelligence analysts have come out after this and, and also noted the fact that um the intelligence that the sri lankan government has had on these uh, attacks as well as the perpetrators and some of the groups in some cases they date back several years right this is not something which you know the indians just gave them a tip off you know a few minutes before the attacks and they didn't do it um just on that basis of that. I mean, the fact is, in addition to the intelligence that the Indians provided, there were other governments that were providing examples to Sri Lanka about how this could be radicalized. And that frame that you provided, right, which is the Islamic State as it kind of loses out in the Middle East, uh, filtering into places in South Asia and also Southeast Asia, is something that we've been talking about for several years now. Um, so I think that is really the the frame in which we should be talking about. So hopefully we'll see more regional cooperation um, in terms of addressing these threats. But the fact is this has exposed the fact that at a national level, um, different countries have different experiences and different ways of thinking about this problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so something I wanted to also talk about is uh, there's been a lot of discussion, I guess primarily outside of the region, primarily here in the West, about the Sri Lankan government's decision to um, temporarily turn off major social media platforms in the aftermath of the attack. So uh, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Viber, all sort of very popular um, messaging platforms uh, in um, uh, not only Sri Lanka, but in uh, South and Southeast Asia broadly, were uh, disabled after the attacks. And it's not the first time Sri Lanka's done this. They uh, did this last March when um, there were sort of major clashes between um, ethnic Sinhala Buddhists and uh, the Muslim minority there. Um, but I think the reaction to the social media um, shutdown has been kind of puzzling because on one hand you have people acknowledging that maybe this was what needed to be done to stem 
broader ethnic violence from breaking out, particularly when there was no attribution, right? Because when you don't have attribution mm-hmm. after an attack, you get people coming up with all kinds of theories about who's responsible, and that could lead to dangerous things. But then on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to the view that in, it, it, you know, in societies like Sri Lanka, where freedom of expression has been under challenge, um, you know, social media platforms are a very important source of information for people. And especially after an attack, something like WhatsApp is a way for people to kind of check in with their loved ones and see if they're uh, safe and okay. So it, it, it's a polarizing issue. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, uh, what you thought of the uh, decision to uh, uh, turn off the um, these major social media and uh, messaging apps, Prashant. Yeah, it's a tough one, as you said, right? Because, I mean, there, there are all these manifestations that um, are going to make either side happy irrespective of what, unhappy irrespective of what the government does. For example, you know, when they shut down these social media platforms, you know, I had friends who were trying to contact relatives um, and, you know, loved ones in Sri Lanka, and they, they had no way of doing that, right? Because these social media platforms like WhatsApp and things that are readily available for communication were suddenly were suddenly off the off the grid, and so it's very difficult managing this. But on the other hand, you had these um, not only questions about responsibility but also potential reprisals that the government was was dealing with, and so I felt like the, you know they they felt like they needed to respond quite swiftly. But it also gets at the other aspect of this problem, right? So in all these attacks afterwards, and there have happened, um, there's been an ongoing conversation about. Um, to what extent these social media platforms need to increase their own attention to helping manage uh, the fallout from these attacks and how they respond, right? Um, And Facebook's the most popular one, but there have been conversation about other platforms as well. Um, And I think that has come under more scrutiny after these attacks as well. I think you've already seen some accounts written by observers about, you know, what more could Facebook have done? And that is a conversation that We've talked about in other contexts, too, with respect to the Rohingya issue mm-hmm. in Myanmar, for example, and the spreading of hate speech. So it's not a it's not an easy thing uh, for the government uh, to do and to handle. But I do think, I mean, there there is a, a careful uh, management here, not only in how the government responds, but what is the role of populations? What is the role of companies and what is the role of governments? And I think we're we're not having uh, as granular of a conversation on that uh, as we need to. And also these social media platforms, they have to respond not only on the basis of preventing these attacks, but also their bottom line. And it's it's tough for them to navigate that challenge too. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Facebook has started working with the Sri Lankan government uh, starting last year. I think they have put out a statement to that effect after the uh, March 2018 shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I mean, one other thing I'll just note, uh, I mean, this is kind of a burgeoning issue and there's a lot of people doing good work kind of examining the actual interaction between social media and political violence. But I think the one thing to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, we've, we've seen all forms of media interact with violence for decades, right? I mean, uh, we've mm-hmm. seen greater forms of violence occur with less sophisticated media, for example. Um, you know, one of the examples I keep going back to is in the mid-1990s, if you look at the events leading up to the Rwandan genocide, one of the major motivators of the media space then was radio, right? A fairly mm-hmm. primitive technology, um, but um, it's really about how information spreads and uh, how nefarious actors actually use the technologies available to them to uh, accomplish their ends. Uh, so social media certainly, I think, is the latest technology to sort of play into um, that longer history of media interacting with violence. But I think it's, it's you know, important to also recognize the sort of positive role that social media has, right? Uh, I mean, after the constitutional crisis, um, social media was actually one of the ways Sri Lankan citizens were finding out about what was going on, given that the government had cracked down on sort of conventional forms of media. And of course, then there's the problem that you have 
conventional media outlets that are equally susceptible to spreading misinformation, um, especially, you know, in these regions where, um, you know, journalistic standards aren't necessarily uh, what they are in, uh, in some other places. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is a, uh, a, a broader conversation to have about, about the interactions here. Yeah. And I think to add to that, I mean, the, the, the ways in which, you know, the, the terrorists and perpetrators will use social media platforms to spread their messaging. But we've seen in several attacks now, you know, across, you know, so Philippines, we saw that, Indonesia, even in, in some cases in India as well, it's also a way for communities to build resilience through social media to show that, you know, after the attacks that they're coming together, that they're building solidarity, particularly in big uh, spaces and countries, right? So the social media, as you said, no matter what forms of media you're talking about, it really depends on what you do with it rather than, you know, whether you should have the platform or not or access or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, let's keep an eye on uh, what what else uh, emerges from the ongoing uh, Sri Lankan investigation. But I think, um, you know, these attacks will be, I think, a real wake-up call in the region, Mm-hmm. Um, especially uh, as we as we see the Islamic State continue to have sway with uh, regional and um, local groups in particular. Um, anyways, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me today. Oh, good to be with you. Great. Uh, for listeners, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast and you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on iTunes, Google Play, and actually we're now also available on Spotify. Uh, that was due to uh, a few requests we had from our listeners uh, and speaking of, if you have other requests, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to either me or Prashant with suggestions for topics that you'd like us to address on the podcast. We've actually done a few episodes based off of those ideas in the past, so we do take that seriously. Um, and if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on any of those platforms, uh, please do so. We really uh, appreciate that. It really helps get the word out about the podcast. Um, so thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more. <laughs>